Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hello, yogis. I hope you had a wonderful summer. I'm very excited about today's guest. And before we get to that conversation, just to let you know, I will be visiting 889 Yoga the first weekend of December this year. One workshop is impeccable with your word, helping teachers cue specifically so that you move bodies around with efficiency and also how your words and your choices shape the atmosphere so you can get more specific yourself with the intention you're setting in your classes. The other is called the medicine of subtraction, and it's just a beautiful, gentle, mellow time of breath practice and meditation. And so if you are looking to experience my teaching rather than my teaching training, that's the good uh, option for you. So that's the first weekend of December. My guest today is Amber Westfall. I can't even really recall how I came across Amber, but I have subscribed to her newsletter for a while. And as you hear me say in the podcast, it is one of my favorite subscriptions. Amber Westfall is a herbalist and owner of The Wild Garden, and that's also the name of her website and her newsletter. Her passion is sharing the wisdom of plants with others through herb walks, workshops, and consultations. She is an instructor for the Herbal Certificate Program at the International Academy Health Education Center. She also offers local, organically grown, ethically wildcrafted, and carefully handcrafted herbal products through a monthly herbal box program. Amber and I chat all things herbal, and you'll hear me repeatedly contextualize them within the frame of Ayurveda. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Amber, hello. Yes, hi. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm very well. I'm tired. We're having another teething week. We've got mm. two bicuspids coming in at the same time, and oh boy, <laughs> and so many midnight cuddles. Yes, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so I'm actually drinking some herbal tea at the moment. That's got some more peppy items in it, including lemongrass, so that I don't lean too heavily into the caffeinated things. Right. Yes. Yeah. To, to stay awake and stay balanced, but not overstimulated. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm so pleased you were able, you were able to join me. Well, uh, as I explained in my opening, it's not uh, a strictly yoga conversation. I think it's of interest and of utmost importance to yoga practitioners and specifically Ayurvedic practitioners that they have some more resources available to them to look to their immediate vicinity and community to find things that are supportive of both the environment and of their own health. Because in Ayurveda, we say that, that that's that's not different. That's what's supportive for the environment is what's supportive for you as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I wanted to have you on. Wonderful. Well, I'm so pleased and thrilled to be here. 
What has your week been like? The last, the last weeks of summer for me, I always try to find a little bit of extra time to slow down. As, as an herbalist that grows and gathers my own uh, medicine, my busy time of year is during the growing season. As soon as the ground thaws and the earliest wild greens pop out of the earth right up until the ground freezes again um, in, in the fall, I... You know, I, I have to follow the seasons and, and follow the, the rhythms and the cycles of growth and, and the plants. And so that means for a good chunk of the year, I'm very busy, very active. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can sometimes go because I love what I do so much. I can, I can spend quite a bit of time doing the work that I love and forget that I need a little bit of downtime, that I need a little bit of a break and that I need to restore and recharge. And so we're, we're kind of right in the middle of, of the harvest season right now. And there's still many more months ahead. And I, what I like to do at the end of summer, is pause a little bit, find a little bit of extra time for some uh, some rest, some restoration, and some recharging to help me transition from one season into the next and to make sure that I have enough energy and, and resources to do all of the work that's ahead of me until I really kind of dive into that quiet, restful season that winter brings. Yes. In Ayurveda, we say essentially the same thing, which is that seasonal transitions, really any transition, is filled with potency, however, is also destabilizing. So we need to yes. heighten our mm -hmm. attention during times of transition. That's right. Yeah. And, and I find, you know, especially for, for busy families who are coming off of summer vacations and then getting into a fall routine, if they've got kids that are going into school and, and, and activities, um, I, sometimes I find it, it's difficult for people to manage those, those transitional, uh, shifts because it, it kind of goes from, the hecticness of, of summer into the hecticness of, of fall. Yes. <laughs> and, and what happens is a lot of people end up feeling really run down and depleted just as they're heading into cold and flu season. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say something else from the Ayurvedic perspective, but I'm going to have to calm down on those statements. <laughs> I don't want to reframe every single thing you say in the Ayurvedic perspective. Uh, however, one more for now, which is that, uh, the, the seasonal shift that comes from summer into autumn for us anyway, with Ayurveda, the autumn is governed by, uh, by air and space. And so it's a drying season. It's a drying and obviously, uh, an increasingly cold season. And what people might not realize is that we call that particular uh, set of qualities the Vata Dosha, and Vata Dosha governs the autumn. So Vata actually starts to accumulate in late summer. 
And so Mm. if you don't take the time to prepare yourself and step back and slow down and get a little heavier, we might say, uh, you're actually exactly like you said, you're actually already behind uh, the ball before it gets rolling into autumn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I want to ask you about your transition because I have this vision of you, uh, you know, wearing mostly drapey clothing and wandering around with your hand grazing over flowers uh, in wild fields for most of your life. Is that what you've been doing forever? <laughs> no, I I haven't. Although I feel like. The, the long and winding path that has led to where I am today uh, makes a, a lot of sense and, and for, for who I am and, and what my interests have been. My obsession, my interest in herbs uh, has only really become the, the kind of central axis of my life for the last 10 years. So it was only in my in my early 30s that I really started to um, study deeply the plants and the gifts that they have to offer. Prior to that, I was still just kind of trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go in and who I wanted to be and um, my my undergraduate degree in school is in religious studies, where I took a special interest in the Eastern traditions and studied a little bit of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam, um, which was wonderful and it was an incredible education, but it didn't leave me with a lot of practical uh, skills for any kind of a career post-graduation. Um, so I did a, a number of things after I graduated from university. I spent some time living in an intentional faith-based community for people with intellectual and physical disabilities, um, a, a large community. There's many of them all over the world, but the one that I was in was in Richmond Hill, just north of Toronto. Um, I, I did my yoga teacher training in, in 2008-2009. And for, for six years before I started the business that I have now, I was an office manager in an alternative healthcare clinic. And I worked for an acupuncturist and a naturopathic doctor and, and a chiropractor. So not completely un, unrelated, but, uh, you know, n- natural healing was something that I was interested in, but not something that I was pursuing uh, as a, as a, you know, a, a passion um, until about 10 years ago. But I feel like there was, I've always loved nature and I've always um, felt healing and I would go to nature for, for solace, for restoration, for 
um, times when I was feeling unbalanced or, or upset, it was, it was kind of nature that I would go to as, as a source of, of comfort and, and healing for me. Was this something that you uh, learned in your family? Did you have a family love of nature? Yes, I did. Uh, many summers going camping and especially from my father, he uh, he just adored being outside. He knew every tree in the bush um, as a child. His favorite thing to do was to just take a bedroll and, you know, a can of food and a, and a knife and go wander off into the bush. And, um, you know, that's how he kind of dealt with things when, you know, if times were difficult or if he was struggling, he would just, that's what he would do is he would go off into nature. And so he kind of passed some of that on to me. My grandmother who passed away last October she she was English, and her father was the head gardener of a thirty gardener estate, mm. and and their home was was modest. Well, now now it's worth millions, but it was modest for the era. But the garden was spectacular, and mm. obvious. And she she uh, brought that with her to Canada, and always had large spectacular gardens. But it's something that has been coming up for me recently that I'm I'm struggling with a little bit in my grief is that I have all these things that belong to her that are communicative of who she was, like a, a teapots, many, many, many Royal Daltons. <laughs> but I have this such a clear memory of walking through fields with her and particularly uh, a young version of me trying to fight free Queen Anne's lace to wrap into a crown for myself. And, mm. and it, those are the things that truly remind me of my grandmother are being in the garden, being in the woods. Uh, but they're, they're ephemeral, right? You can't hold on to them. So you, you clutch the teapot instead. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm very fortunate that my grandmother is still alive and my interest in work with herbs has actually helped us connect and deepen our relationship in, in many ways, because as my knowledge and interest has grown over the years, our conversations, they've reminded her of the plants that were a part of her life when she was a child and she you know we would talk and she would remember more and more about oh that's right when i was a little girl my my grandmother taught me this my mother would send me out to the garden to go and gather that so a lot of these memories that she hadn't thought about in in decades um, were, were kind of coming back to her. And it was, it was really delightful for me because it reminded me that we don't have to go back very far at all in, in, our, in our personal and collective heritage and ancestry to realize that, uh, you know, our connection to plants um, is, it, you know, it, 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 it was, it was still so much a part of, of people's everyday lives. And there, 
there has been a little bit of that knowledge lost. Some, you know, my my grandmother grew up kind of learning about healing plants and, and working with them a little bit. But of course, the Second World War disrupted all of that. And then the post-World War era, where you had this whole concept of better living through chemistry and the growth of the pharmaceutical industry. So she didn't carry that on into her adult years. She didn't pass that on to my mother. Um, so I, I didn't get that direct knowledge and learning through my family. I had to kind of relearn it. But it's comforting to me to know that you don't have to go back that very, very far to see that, uh, you know, those traditions are still there. And there's a, there's a collective yearning, I think, to to reach back to them before they are lost. Because like you said, you don't have to look back that far. And yet you can see some trends emerging, uh, not even in the yoga community, but in the wider community with an interest in uh, sort of layman carpentry and the, the whole DIY movement, this reconnection with doing things with your hands and, and learning uh, the resources and the knowledge yourself. There's a growing interest in, in all of those areas and certainly in, in herbal medicine, I see it. Have you been dominantly self-taught? A large portion of my, my knowledge was cer certainly self-taught. Um, I did also study, my first herbal teacher was Kathleen Leeson. Um, just outside of the Wakefield area in Lepeche. And I've, I try to make a point of going to a herbal conference every year with technology. There's lots of ways that you can learn online and through distance education. So I'm, I'm continually taking courses and programs through either through distance, uh, through different schools or online programs, and then learning from just having direct experience from the plants themselves. Has that ever gone a little sideways for you in experimentation? Fortunately, not. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I teach my students, especially when you're working with wild plants that you're harvesting yourself, is just the the importance, the critical importance of having an accurate identification. So, you know, there are plants that that have some toxic, poisonous lookalikes that you don't want to mix up. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of the number one rule of gathering wild plants is to have that accurate identification. I did I did have one unpleasant morning when I I made a smoothie for breakfast and I was, you know, still half asleep and I had some frozen elderberries and I thought, oh, I'll throw in a handful of frozen elderberries into my smoothie. Elderberries are mildly toxic unless you cook them. Hmm. The seeds contain certain glycosides uh, that convert to hydrogen cyanide in the body. Um, heat denatures those glycosides, but you know, the frozen berries, they hadn't been cooked. 
So I, um, it, you know, a mild intoxication with those glycosides just gives you a little bit of nausea that could potentially progress to vomiting. Um, so I didn't get that far, but I just, I just didn't feel very well for a few hours okay. and it took me a little bit of time to figure out what I had done. And then I realized, oh, it was the frozen elderberries. <laughs> so that was many, many years ago. I've never made that mistake again. Um, unfortunately that's, that's the only, that's the only time where I, um, where I ingested plants in a way that wasn't prepared properly. How would you, how would you use elderberries uh, and what for if they had been cooked? Well, elderberries are just ripening now. I'll be gathering them later this week and next week. They, it's a, it's a small tree, tall shrub. And there are European species. There are also native species, uh, to North America. And aside from these problematic, uh, glycosides that you need to cook or, or dry before ingesting, um, elderberry has wonderful antiviral compounds. So elderberry is one of my favorite remedies for the flu virus. And it's one that is very beneficial as a preventative. So I'll often encourage people to start taking elderberry in the fall and continue using it through cold and flu season. Um, and it also works if you, if you get sick and you, and you have the symptoms. Um, so it can help. The studies have shown that if, if taken frequently at the earliest signs and symptoms, it can sometimes prevent an illness from, uh, developing. Um, to into a full-blown infection, or if you do get sick, it shortens the duration of the illness and the severity of symptoms. So one of my favorite things to do with elderberries is to make elderberry syrup. Uh, you can also make jelly and jam. You can dry them and make tea with them. Um, there's, there's, it's, once it's cooked, it's actually a very delicious and nutritious food. So you can, you can eat it, you can drink elderberry juice. There's all kinds of great things you can do with it. And these are all kinds of things that you can do with them. Uh, that's not dehydrating them, grinding them and putting them into a pill. Exactly. Yes. I prefer from, from my perspective as, as a herbal practitioner, I like to use plants in their whole form as much as possible. And for, for plants that are nutritious and mineral rich and food like, one of the best ways to work with them is to eat them or to drink them as tea. Um, you certainly can take herbs in capsules, but they're just not as effective that way. Sometimes, especially if our digestive systems aren't functioning as efficiently as they should be, the little bit of extra work that it takes to break down the capsule can inhibit uh, absorption. And it's sometimes difficult to get the therapeutic amounts that you would need to be active in the body in capsule form. Mm -hmm. We talk about that in Ayurveda, uh, but one of the things that I'm actually reaching back for is from my food studies days, and that's that you can't, you can't necessarily trick the body 
all the time. And so even though we think of chewing uh, or the process of drinking something as uh, strictly mechanical, that mechanical process serves a purpose in, in sort of the all systems go nature of digestion and absorption and use. Mm. So that's why we lean into uh, diet as medicine rather than supplement as medicine, though we can use those if we need to. That makes, that makes so much sense. Yes. And, you know, from, from my perspective as a Western herbalist, a lot of the therapeutic actions come from the taste of the plants, experiencing the plants with, with all of our senses, our sense of sight and sense of smell, but essentially our sense of taste. And a, a really good example of that are things that taste bitter. You know, we have we have bitter taste receptors on our tongue. We have them in other areas of our body as well. But it's when it's when those taste receptors, when we eat something bitter, and it signals our taste receptors to send chemical messages uh, that kickstart an array of digestive processes that don't necessarily have the same effect if you were to take something bitter and put it in a pill and swallow it so that you don't have to have that bitter taste. Yes. And our diet is woefully low in, in bitter and astringent qualities. Uh, in the Western diet, we tend toward bland food, even avocado toast, which is you know, Instagram's favorite healthy breakfast, uh, is, is it, it still falls into, uh, the sweet salty camp. And so doesn't actually satisfy those needs for, uh, for spice and for herb that other cuisines provide. There's uh, a wonderful herbalist Guido Maze who talks about a bitter deficiency syndrome and he says that we can attribute some of these chronic diseases of, of affluence to an increase of sugar and fat and refined processed foods in the diet. But he's, he posits that it's, it's also quite likely that it, these diseases arise due to a lack of, of bitters. Mm because of the importance of that signaling that the bitter taste does. It, it signals the digestive system to, to start all of these processes. And without that signaling, it's, it's almost like we've, we've stopped telling our bodies that we're about to eat and our bodies aren't able to, they just, it just doesn't know what to do with the food. Mm. <laughs> Or it isn't able to as efficiently uh, digest, assimilate, and then eliminate uh, the nutrients that we take in. I'll see if I can Which, find it for the for the show notes that I'll include on the website. But the New York Times did an article about eight years ago, and it was about how food has only ever been propagated for uh, or modified for yield. So its ability to withstand weather and uh, pesticides and drought, et cetera, 
as well as flavor and taste. So whatever the the end consumer prefers. Mm. And so they look at cultivated foods that are common in the grocery store and compare them to their wild counterparts. And then they measure phytonutrients. So the available nutrients in the item. And it's shocking the disparity. Some of them are probably less surprising. They compare the white potato to the purple Yucatan potato. But one of them that was actually shocking was spinach, which is considered a quote unquote superfood compared to dandelion. And dandelion, which is very bitter, uh, has thousands of times higher available phytonutrients than spinach. And that's, that's true pretty much across the entire spectrum of wild versus cultivated foods. Um, and the, the author of the book about whom that article that I think you're referring to was written is, um, Joe, Joe Robinson. And the book that she wrote some years back is called Eating on the Wild Side. And, yeah, the the disparity between exactly what you said, spinach, what we think of as a superfood, it makes Popeye strong, um, <laughs> right? Um, and then and then you compare that with with dandelions that people like the pesticide industry, where billions are spent on these chemicals that people spray on dandelions to get rid of them out of their lawn. If you're looking for a superfood, I mean, you literally just have to look into your own yards. <laughs> um, and, and that's one of the, one of the things that I get really excited about when I look at these wild and weedy plants that are growing all around us and, and what they have to offer us. Um, and I, it was, it was really striking for me too. They, um, I believe in that same article, uh, or at the very least in, in the book, um, she compares conventional apples with wild crab apples. And the phytonutrient content in conventional apples, I mean, essentially conventional apples these days, there are some varieties where they're just, it's all just sugar and, and no nutrients. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the crab apples are, there's a particular crab apple that grows in a very mountainous region in, I think, I believe it's Nepal. It's called the Sikkim crab apple. And the villagers who, who live in the area where these crab apples grow, they all they need to do is go out for one day a year and get their harvest. And that that harvest supplies them with more uh, phytonutrients than the average North American would eat in conventional apples for, you know, the equivalent period of time. There's just they're so rich and especially antioxidant phytonutrients. And I don't know how our local crab apples compare, but uh, they are coming into season right now. And I was gathering some crab apples yesterday, and, and I love working with them because they are incredibly nutritious. And they're very sour and they're very tart. And as you said, you know, we, we tend to have a much more bland diet where we, we focus on flavors that are sweet and, and salty and, and unctuous. Um, 
And so for people who aren't used to stronger flavors, like the very sour tart flavor of a, of a crab apple, it can be very unfamiliar and, and people aren't quite sure how to, how to work with it. But my favorite thing to do with crab apples is to make crab apple butter, where you just cook the crab apples uh, down into a sauce and separate all the, the seeds and the stems and the skins with a, I use a food mill, and then put that applesauce into a, into a crock pot and just let that cook down until it turns this deep, rich, dark burgundy color. And then I'll sweeten it with maybe a little bit of honey, maple syrup, and I'll add in some spices. And it's, it's so delicious. It's so yummy. And the phytonutrients, antioxidants, tend to be more bioavailable when they're cooked. Mm -hmm. So you will break down some of the, some of the heat um, sensitive vitamins, but the phyto, phytonutrients tend to be preserved and even more easily absorbed um, upon cooking. That's so cool. Do you have a recipe for that or do you just make these things up as you go? I kind of just make things up as I go. I'm terrible with recipes. I, I'm not at all. I, yeah, I don't, I don't do recipes. <laughs> I don't really do measurements. I just sort of throw things together. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, if you search online for crab apple butter, there's, there's a few recipes floating around out there. But you provide a lot of things uh, to your community other than recipes. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was your newsletter because it's, I told you that when we first chatted that it's one of the few newsletters I genuinely look forward to receiving and hold on to because the content is so excellent and it, it's so informative. Mm, what, thank you so much. What <laughs> led you, why, why was it so important to you to do such a high caliber newsletter? I wanted to, my ultimate goal is in some ways to educate and empower people about the healing gifts of plants to the point where I put myself out of a job. Mm. I'm not too worried about that happening, but um, ultimately I just want to share my love and my passion and the information that I've learned from other people and to share that with, with others, to help them connect with the natural world, to connect with plants, and to empower people to know that they have options and ways of caring for themselves and their loved ones um, using the plants that, that are growing all around them. And so ultimately, I just want to share that information. I do have a business, and I am making a living off of it, so I, I need to reach out and uh, let people know what what is available and, and what I have to offer. So with the newsletter, I just wanted to combine um, information as well as letting folks know what I'm up to and to do that in a way where even if you, you weren't interested in anything that I had to offer, you weren't available for any of the workshops, that you could still read that newsletter and take away something practical and useful at the end of it. You succeeded. And I just, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Mission accomplished. So you can check that box. So that's incredibly useful for the people 
who are not in the in the Ottawa area. And I was so pleased uh, to be able to interview someone someone local to the Ottawa area, since my listeners are all over the world, but many of them are in my community in Ottawa. And people can come see you, can't they? You you have a you have a place. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I'm I'm very fortunate. I have this incredible situation. I am currently living on a 150-acre farm in the city. It's an NCC property, so that means it's owned by the National Capital Commission. But there is a nonprofit organization in Ottawa called Just Food, and they do all kinds of wonderful things for supporting the local food movement in Ottawa and the surrounding area. They support local farmers. They connect local growers and eaters. So they'll connect uh, farmers with restaurants who are looking for local produce. They administer the community gardening network in Ottawa. And they have a a 25-year lease on this farm. And they offer a startup farm program. With mean, and that means that for, for people who want to get into the farming business, but they don't have access to land, um, they, they can't afford to buy a farm, they don't have a viable business yet, so they'll have difficulties getting a loan from a bank, or maybe they want to give farming a try before they quit their full-time jobs, they can apply to the program here, get access to land, access to equipment and training and all kinds of other wonderful resources and get their farm businesses up and running. And so I'm I'm one of many farmers on the Just Food Farm here in the east end of Ottawa. And it's a certified organic farm, whereas most of the other farmers, they're growing organic vegetables for farmers markets or CSAs or to sell to restaurants. I, I work with um, the, the herbal plants, the wild plants. So I do grow many of my own herbs, but then I also wildcraft from, from the property. And then there is a, a lovely big farmhouse, and I'm very fortunate in that I rent and live in the farmhouse. So whereas all of the other farmers commute from wherever they live in, in the city, I, uh, I get to live right here which makes it very convenient and and a wonderful um, opportunity to have have a big farm in my backyard. And then I I run workshops all year long, even in the wintertime. I have a big enough space that I can bring about... uh, Well, we've we've squeezed, I think, close to 18 people indoors (laughs) for the indoor workshops. And then through the growing season, I offer plant walks, so people come out to the farm and I introduce them to the wild and weedy plants that I work with for food and, and medicine. And then I also run children's programming, mostly with the homeschool community. And I, I have two levels of, of programming, a young herbalist social club for younger kids kids and a young herbalist apprenticeship for older children and I teach them about the wild edible and medicinal plants and uh, teach them how to accurately identify them and harvest them and and make uh, different preparations with them that they can take home and um, use themselves and, and with their families. What age group do you do you look at? I work with children eight years old and up. Do you ever do things Elsewhere, do you ever go into the city and teach 
teach foraging? I do, yes. And um, people will contact me to organize their own private walks, or I do through other organizations. So, for example, in October, I'm collaborating with the Ottawa Tea Guild um, to do a plant walk in the Fletcher Wildlife Garden. And I'll talk about what plants are available in the fall that you can use to make your own herbal teas. Um, I also teach at a school in the West End, the International Academy Health Education Center, and they have a herbal certificate program there, and I teach the herbal classes for that certificate program. What are some of the things that uh, you might be willing to share uh, with listeners that you don't uh, get the time to contextualize and educate, etc.? What are some of the things that people can find uh, sort of in their own backyard in, in this region anyway? The most common ubiquitous plant that if you have any patch of green space at all, you will likely have growing is a little plant called plantain. And it's not related to the banana-like fruit that people think of when they hear the word plantain. It's a low-growing plant that has very... Uh, broad egg-shaped leaves and is distinguished by the parallel leaf veins that are very prominent, especially if you turn the plant over and look at the veins on the back of the leaf. And and plantain is, is one of my favorite herbs. It's a, it's a wonderful friend and ally to get to know. And I teach this plant, especially to the children that I work with, because it's fantastic as a, as a first aid plant. It's wonderful for all kinds of bug bites and bee stings. And it's, the kids really love this. I teach them how to make a spit poultice. So once you've <laughs> accurately identified the plant, it's exactly what it sounds like. You take a leaf, you chew it up until it gets into kind of a, a, a mash, and you put that on wherever you've been bitten or stung. And I tell people, you know, you make a spit poultice for yourself, not for other people. <laughs> but uh, it's incredibly, it's incredibly effective at relieving the the pain and the inflammation from a sting, from taking down swelling, to relieving itching, and especially for kids, I find it really empowering. They'll they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh, I got a mosquito bite, or uh, it's great for for minor wounds and cuts and scrapes and and the stings from stinging nettle. And so they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh, I got a mosquito bite or the or stinging nettle stung me. And I'll say, well, go go put some plantain on it. And they'll go off and they'll find some plantain and they'll chew it up and they'll rub it on. Um, so that, that one is incredibly common. Another one that's uh, growing and available right now, and I, I tend to find it in gardens it's a really common weed in people's gardens because it likes the where the soil is disturbed and constantly being turned over is purslane and some some people may be familiar with purslane because some of the local farmers in the area are growing a cultivated variety of it and they're selling it at the farmers markets but there's there is a a, a um a wild weedy of species of purslane it's another low growing sprawling plant and it's it's succulent 
So it's very, uh, the, the leaves and the stems are very thick and juicy and even a little bit crunchy. And that one is, it's, it's delicious. It's a little bit tart because it has a bit of oxalic acid and malic acid in it. Um, it's very, very nutritious. It's really good for you. It's an excellent source of plant-based essential fatty acids, especially omega-3s. And it's a nice one because you can eat it raw, you can eat it cooked. And unlike many of our wild greens that tend to get tough or bitter as they mature, purslane you can harvest throughout its entire growing season, no matter how mature it is, whether it's in flower or seed or not. So that's one that's very common and um, pretty easy to find. That it does have a, a toxic lookalike um, spurge, and so you do need to be able to tell it apart. But a very simple test for that is if you break a stem of the toxic spurge, it will exude a white milky latex. Whereas if you break the stem of purslane, the the juice or fluid, if it produces any, will be clear. That's a very easy way to tell them apart. Yes. Very cool. It's, I looked up uh, I looked up the uh, plantain while we were chatting, and mm-hmm. and listeners should do it too because I can't tell you how many times in my life I've stared at this plant. Right, in, in just in those moments where perhaps before smartphones in childhood you stared at the ground more. And I know I've looked at this plant thousands of times in my life and had no idea it could have helped me through some mosquito bites. Yeah. One of, one of my young students, um, I was, I was teaching him about how to use plantain on, on mosquito bites. And, and, uh, when his mom came to pick him up, he, he showed him what to do and we were talking about it. And I said, well, you've, you've got plantain growing in your yard. I'm sure you do. And she's like, well, I don't know about that. You know, our, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a pretty thick, lush lawn. I, I don't, I don't think we have any weeds in there. And she came back the next week and she said, there's plantain all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> she just hadn't really noticed it before. And that's, that's really common is that, you know, we tend to, we tend to pass by uh, the, the what's referred to as the wall of green, um, because if if you don't know to to kind of recognize, you don't you don't see the the individual plants. And I remember the the first time that I that I started to realize that there were these incredible beneficial plants all around us. Just how transformative. Um, that experience was for me, the landscape completely changed. Uh, and from that day forward, I saw, you know, the, the, that wall of green before me transformed into individual plants that I then just, you know, had to get to know. Uh, and I'm still getting to know that process. I'm still, after five years of being on the farm, walking around, um, you know, and I, I, I walk the, the farm every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and I'm still discovering plants in places that, I, that I've passed dozens of times and never realized, oh, you're here. I've, I've never seen you before. <laughs> um, so it's still an ongoing process for me. 
Is there something that perhaps is not uh, appropriate for listeners to go and investigate and turn into a tincture without guidance uh, or without looking it up? But is there something that has been particularly radical for your life and for your health that you found through your process? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I, I have... I have sort of special allies, special plant friends that, that I refer to um, that have been personally helpful for me on my own healing journey. Um, one, one plant in particular that stands out for me is actually a very, very common plant, and it's an invasive species. It's purple loosestrife. Yes. Yes, they have uh-huh. they have missions to get rid of this stuff because it's it's choking up our marshes. Oh yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, uh, you know, and and it is a problematic plant in in that sense. Although, and this is uh, another conversation for another time. But invasive species, uh, you know, our our approach to them. And the way that we think about them, I, I tend to maybe have a little bit of a different opinion than, say, you know, um, people who are interested in, in restoring ecological habitats or, or conservationists. But uh, but with regards to purple loosestrife, populations do seem to be stabilizing, so it may not be as bad as, as people once thought. It is an important food source for bees and other pollinator insects, and it has some really interesting medicinal properties. Namely, it's because of its tannin content, it's very astringent, and things that are astringent tend to tighten tone and cause tissues to contract which can be very useful when there are lax tissues um, in the body or tissues that have lost their tone, which you'll often see um, where there's fluids being lost from the body, whether that's through excess sweat or urine or uh, leaky, runny, drippy sinuses um, or, or diarrhea. And I, part of what got me started on, on my discovery of learning about plants was developing intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome and having um, very severe digestive issues for uh, quite some time that made me very ill. And for a period of time, I, I had chronic diarrhea for over a year. And that meant that, you know, I wasn't absorbing nutrients. And for me in particular, my iron levels got down so low that my hair started falling out and my skin started turning color and my energy levels were just completely depleted. And I went through a a battery of tests and I had a a GI specialist and, you know, I I wasn't getting um, enough answers to, to really get a lot of help from from conventional care so you know i i use diet and and herbs to to work with that and i learned about the astringent properties of purple loosestrife and how it can be very useful for toning the tissues of the gut and um helping with things like leaky gut syndrome and, and chronic diarrhea so i very excitedly harvested it for the first time dried it and made tea with it and i had no idea idea what amounts to use. So I made a fairly strong tea and drank 
quite a large amount of it. And after having chronic diarrhea every single day for over a year, I was constipated <laughs> for three days, <laughs> which, you know, I, I kind of overdid it a little bit. But once I was able to adjust the amounts to uh, an appropriate level, that plant became um, just really important for me on my healing journey and just balancing things out a little bit. Um, so I have I have a special relationship with with purple loosestrife. That's so interesting and so powerful. So one of the things that you and I chatted about uh, before we had this conversation was about the importance of sustainability in a couple of different uh, interpretations of sustainability. And so one of the one of the ways uh, of sustainability is is of course ecosystem sustainability that we need to harvest to a point that is sustainable for that plant and for that environment. How do you go about that in your in your education, in your farming, in your practice? Because I mean, there must be some things uh, like wild ginseng that are not sustainable to harvest. That's a really important piece of my work and what I teach. And it's a, it's an issue that's incredibly near and dear to my heart. And, you know, part of the reason why I started the journey that I'm on now was in part due to a number of growing concerns that I had around um, resource depletion and pollution and issues of sustainability in, in general. And, uh, you know, looking for sort of more natural alternative or lower impact ways of working with health and, and healing. And so I, I came to herbs with that mindset from that perspective. And it was a bit disappointing and, and disheartening for me to realize that not everybody comes to um, plant medicine from that perspective. And I, I do have concerns because there is a growing trend and interest, which is wonderful in working with plants for, for food and medicine. There is an increasing trend in popularity in particular for foraging, for using wild foods. And Again, that's great, but there there needs to be an understanding of, uh, you know, harvesting within the limits of the ecosystem, not over harvesting, and that can be very problematic. And you know, the 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 poster child in in this area of over harvesting for for food is is um, ramps, wild leeks. They show up every spring on the restaurant menus. Yes, exactly. And you'll see them in the farmer's markets and chefs love them and foodies love them. And uh, the the reality is, is, is that this is a, a slow growing native species. It's an ephemeral plant, which means it grows in um, deciduous woodland habitats and they only grow in that short period of time from when the snow melts and the ground warms up to the trees leaf out because they they grow in up from the forest floor and they have to do most of their photosynthesizing and energy capture and storage 
in that short period of time when the canopy is open. When the leaves uh, come out on the trees, the canopy closes, and then um, spring ephemerals like wild leeks essentially go into dormancy. So these are very, very slow-growing plants. It takes them seven years to come to maturity before they start reproducing seeds. Those seeds can take up to three years to germinate, and it's it's such a popular wild food that people will go in and they will literally dig up craters of the forest floor and haul out hundreds of pounds of wild leeks to sell personally or to uh, farmers markets and, and to chefs. To the point now where in Quebec, they have laws against how much you can take and it's illegal to harvest more than a certain amount, and it's not very much. I can't remember how many grams it is, but it's 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 not very much at all. And if you get caught harvesting more than that, there's a hefty fine. Um, so so those you know that's that's one issue. And then when you're talking about medicinal plants, there's many many plants that are at risk due to overharvesting. Uh, the wild ginseng that you mentioned is one of them. Golden seal is is another. So when I work with um, students and people who come on my plant walks, I do spend quite a bit of time talking about what's referred to as the ethics of wildcrafting, the ethics of, of harvesting these wild plants that haven't been cultivated by humans. And essentially what it comes down to is that if you're interested in, in harvesting these plants, you are now in a relationship with them. And like any relationship, it comes with a set of responsibilities. And it's up to us to know what those responsibilities are so that we're not over harvesting, that we're not degrading the ecosystems and the habitats that they that these plants grow in. Um, you know, what I strive for is something that's referred to as regenerative harvesting. So it goes beyond sustainability. It goes beyond the concept of not harvesting too much, but this idea that in, in our working with plants and being in relationship with plants, we are, we're, we're stewards so that we now are invested in the plants and the habitats that they grow in and, and we're caretakers. And, and part of taking care is trying to leave a habitat or a system um, not just in, intact, but to work in a way that over the long term will end up having increasingly beneficial results. So increased biodiversity, increased soil fertility, um, you know, increasing the health of a habitat. And, and that's not something that you're, you're going to accomplish or achieve by you know, stopping at a particular spot and gathering plants, uh, you know, once a season when they're available. This this requires kind of a, a long-term commitment, that you're going to the same places over and over again in every season, and that you're not just going when you're going to gather the plants. Um, and, and some concrete ways of, of doing that could be as simple as if you're interested in wildcrafting or foraging, Take a pair of gloves and a plastic bag with you so that you can forage some garbage, clean up uh, some litter that may have been left behind. Um, there are techniques of harvesting that ensure that the plant can continue to survive 
um, and that you're not uh, decreasing plant populations, which that could include things like replanting root crowns when that's appropriate or spreading the seeds of a plant. Um, things like if you are digging up roots, fill, fill in your holes so you're not leaving a lot of um, overturned soil. There's, there's lots of, of, of practices um, and, and those all require a little bit of time and, and effort and, and most importantly, awareness and, and that relationship um, that, that is an ongoing, long-term relationship. The thing that I fear the most about a growing interest in, in wild plants for food and medicine is that because, because of the, the, the capitalist society that we live in, that we're all a part of, it's very easy to see plants as a resource to be extracted mm-hmm. for gain or profit. And that's, that mindset has gotten us into a lot of the problems and issues that we're facing right now. And it would, to me, it would be just devastating if we um, approach plants with that particular mindset. So I try to, to really impress upon people the importance that, that plants are not resources to be extracted from the environment. Um, they are beings in their own right. Um, and they have gifts to, to offer us, uh, but they are also offering their gifts to other creatures, other species that use them for food and for medicine and for shelter, um, and that we are just one element and part uh, of, a, of a larger system. And, and we need to um, be very conscious and, and aware of the impact that we have on those systems. I'm so pleased you include that in your conversations. It reminds me of a funny example of this, this quirk of human nature, this dark side of human nature to take what is beneficial for ourselves without thinking about uh, the sustainability for the community. There's a yoga studio I teach at that several years ago tried to serve iced tea rather than hot tea during the summer months. Mm. But they had to stop because people would, would have little cups and they would serve themselves small amounts of hot tea after a class. But once there was iced tea available, they would screw the lid off their water bottle and fill their water bottle. Mm-hmm. But that meant that the amount that had previously served dozens of people now only served a few people. And it wasn't evil. They weren't thinking, you know, I'm going to get this iced tea and then no one else will have any. It was simply because it, the conditions were perfect for them to fill up. They did. And so the studio had to stop offering iced tea because they couldn't make it in the quantities required for everyone to have a full bottle. Yeah. And so rather than stopping every single person and educating them on the limits, they just changed the offering to encourage people to self-regulate. But of course we don't have that option in the woods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're encouraging everyone to see themselves as participating in that stewardship of the environment. There's a wonderful book 
called Braiding Sweetgrass, written by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she's a member of the Potawatomi Nation, and she's a botanist. And so she uses her scientific learning alongside her Indigenous teachings to teach people about the plants. And she talks about this concept of the honourable harvest. And this one essay in the book, she she mentions wild leeks and, and gathering these. And there's a beautiful quote that I love from this particular essay. And she says, I am the woman with the basket and how I fill it is a question that matters. If we are fully awake, a moral question arises as we extinguish the other lives around us on behalf of our own. Whether we are digging wild leeks or going to the mall or taking iced tea, how do we consume in a way that does justice to the lives that we take? And I think that's just so beautiful and so perfectly sums up, um, you know, what what I try to impart to my students and how I try to live my relationships with the plants. You try to make your offerings available to people. And perhaps for a moment, we should clarify what those offerings are because you've mentioned the workshops that you do, but you also do a monthly herbal box. Mm. What goes into the monthly herbal box? So every month there's, I offer a box of herbal products and there's a theme for every month. And depending on that theme, I'll put together, there's a large box and a small box. There's six products that go into the large, four that go into the small. And um, then I write a, a newsletter, uh, a fairly detailed newsletter full of information that says, this is what's in your box this month. This is some information about the plants, how to work with the products. And those boxes get shipped out uh, in the mail through Canada Post, or there is also the option to come and pick them up at the farm. And for example, uh, the theme for se September's box is the gut check box. So it's going to be herbal products that have an affinity for gut health, uh, the health of digestion, um, so purple lace roostrife, uh, the plant that I mentioned earlier, that's one of the plants that's going to go into my gut healing herbal tea that's going to go into September's box. So I've been doing those boxes for nearly five years now. And um, there's usually a, a herbal tea in each box every month. And then there might be um, some herbal tinctures, which are alcohol extracts. Uh, you might find an infused oil or an herbal salve, um, herbal syrups. And it's a way for people who are interested in learning a little bit more about plants, but maybe they're not quite sure where to get started. Um, maybe they want to build their own home apothecary of, of herbal products. This is kind of a nice way to, to do that because not only are you getting the products, but then you have the newsletter, which provides fairly detailed information about how to use them and, and work with them. And I've had people tell me that, you know, some people 
some people might just buy one month and and that will give them lots of stuff to to use and work with for a long time but i have people who get boxes every single month and they tell me that it's kind of like uh christmas when the box comes it's a gift that they give to themselves um i have one woman who she when her box arrives she sets it aside she tells her kids they can't look at it they can't touch it she won't she won't open it until she has time to sit down with a cup of tea and to be able to open the box and read the newsletter from front to back um so and and i work exclusively with plants that i grow and gather myself in the Ottawa area, mostly from the organic farm that, that I live on. There are other herbal boxes out there of different styles and, and models. Um, and as far as I know, certainly in Canada, I'm the only one that's working with um, exclusively with, with the local plants. Um, and that was a decision that I made at the beginning. Uh, that was something that it was really important to me that I wanted to to introduce people to the plants that are growing in in this bioregion. Um, so I'm not I'm not buying uh, herbs from other sources and and making products with them, which which is completely valid and and wonderful. And I do I source herbs. I buy herbs when I when I need them, um, but. For the box, particularly, it's uh, exclusively plants that I grow and gather myself. And you make it available at at multiple price points. I was inspired to offer uh, some of my teacher trainings at a sliding scale tuition because you offer these boxes at a sliding scale price. Yes, yes. I implemented that a few years ago because I was inspired by other folks. And I really wanted to make my products um, as accessible as possible to people with different levels of income. And I was familiar with the sliding scale for people who offer services. You know, it could be um, counseling or I know some naturopathic doctors offer sliding scale. Um, so I knew I was familiar with that model for services, but I wondered if it could be applied to products, to, to goods. And um, I saw that it had been done in a couple of other places. So I just did a little bit of research. I spent some time figuring out what my costs were and then the scale that I could offer that would um, make my, my products accessible to people with different levels of incomes that would still cover my costs um, and still be able to give me a, a, a reasonable, modest um, income. And so there are three price points for the boxes that people are able to choose from. And, and the way that I describe it is that if, if paying the full price means that you would be more vulnerable to meeting your own um, food, healthcare, shelter, essential transport needs, then choose one of the lower prices on the scale. Um, and I've been finding that that works very, very well. Um, people who are able to afford the full price, they pay it. Um, and then people who need to choose lower on the scale, um, they choose that. And I've had people who will pay lower on the scale some months 
um, and pay higher up when they can and sometimes even pay the full price when they're able. So, you know, um, if people's income needs or their income fluctuates, they'll choose their price point um, that, that kind of reflects that. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I found that that works really well and, and it allows people to, to have access to these plants. Ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, you know, herbal medicine, plant medicine is the people's medicine. Um, if I could offer it for free, I would. <laughs> um, but I find that this is a, a, a nice balance. That's, that's very generous of spirit of you. Have you had to tinker with it at all? Um, not, not really. I did, I did change my prices recently, but that was more to reflect shipping costs. Shipping costs, um, had gone up quite significantly and before the shipping costs were embedded in the overall price. And in order to cover those costs, I, I had to take that out. But, but other than that, um, the scale has, has pretty much remained the same. That's heartening to hear that, that it worked for you and for your community once you set it forth. It's not always that way. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so, so much uh, for your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on. It's been, uh, it's been inspiring and exciting. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person and to receiving one of your boxes. You have a couple of things coming up and you had mentioned dandelions, which everyone you know, everyone is familiar with dandelions. It's easy to, to go out and find yourself some. You have some workshops coming up. Are they, are they sold out? Are we going to have to wait till winter? They're all sold out, except there's one or two spots in the um, Healing with Yellow Dot workshop. Uh, it was that series was a continuation of series that I had offered earlier this summer. And uh, the summer series was very, very popular, uh, very well attended. And so I had a suspicion that if I offered a fall one, that, um, that I would be able to fill up all the spots, although I didn't expect that they would fill up with literally within a few days. So, um, they're all sold out except for the, the yellow dock workshop in, in November. So people will probably have to wait, um, until I figure out what my fall offerings will be. Um, there is the plant walk in October with the Ottawa Tea Guild. Um, and I do have an events calendar on my website at thewildgarden.ca. And I try to keep that as up to date as, as possible. So people can keep an eye on that to see what upcoming events are available. Cool. And they can also hire you uh, separately if you have the time. Yep, I'm available uh, for private events as well. Amazing. Thank you again, Amber. Good luck with your with your uh, mid mid season restfulness and transition into autumn. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed speaking with you. A big thank you for listening, especially to my subscribers and those of you who have left reviews on iTunes, especially you, Jamie. And a reminder that in November, I'm offering a four-day module, Understanding Moving Bodies, and teaching efficient, accessible yoga. 
you'll leave with a clear understanding of how to build sequences that are beneficial and more inclusive for the general population, but also with incredibly reduced fear because we will learn how to understand what we're looking at when we see people moving through specific ranges of movement. Details on the website at www.intelligentedge.yoga. Until next time, namaste for now, yogis.